message. Fear God and give Him glory. God desires that we glorify Him, that we honor Him, that we worship Him, that we submit our lives to Him. That is the eternal gospel. That is the eternal message for sinners to hear, glorify God. Now I want you to turn to Acts for a moment, chapter 12, just uh, continuing a brief introduction. In Acts chapter 12, there's a most astonishing account of uh, Herod. And um, it comes down in verse 20. Herod was having some political problems with the surrounding peoples. And so he wanted to sort of reposition his authority. And so in verse 21, actually, of Acts 12... On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum or the throne or the judgment seat, and began delivering an address to them. Now, Herod wanted to sort of reinforce his power, and so he declared it Herod Day. And everybody was to come and honor Herod. He put on his royal garb, took his seat, and began to speak. And he was a very convincing speaker, apparently, because verse 22 said, And the people kept crying out, The voice of a God and not a man. I mean, they were just amazed at this guy. They were in awe of him. The whole pomp and circumstance deal worked. His speech was very persuasive. And they started to cry, The voice of a God and not a man. And he was loving every minute of it. And then an amazing thing happened in verse 23. And immediately... An angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. Not exactly the planned ending to Herod Day. God killed him. God killed him by turning worms loose in him and they ate him. Why? Because he didn't give God what? Glory. Very serious. We said back in Romans chapter 1 that uh, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven because men who knew God glorified him not as God. There's a story back in Daniel chapter 4 of Nebuchadnezzar who decided that he was God. And God struck him with insanity and for seven years... He crawled around in the grass, eating grass like an ox, and he was the most powerful man in the world, the head of the Babylonian Empire. He was turned into a raving maniac. His fingernails grew like eagle's claws. His hair grew all over everywhere, and he crawled around for seven years munching grass like a beast until he came to his senses and realized that the true God is in heaven, and it's not him. Failure to glorify God is indeed serious. The prophet Jeremiah spoke about glorifying God and about failing to do that. In the 13th chapter of Jeremiah's prophecy, listen, he says, Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness and before your feet stumble on the dusky mountains and while you're hoping for light, he turns it into gross darkness and gloom. In other words, you glorify God or else. Back to Revelation chapter 14, where we started this little discussion in verses 6 and 7, the angel is preaching this everlasting gospel, 
which is fear God and give Him glory. And then this, because the hour of His judgment has come. In other words, you either glorify God or you're judged. Bottom line. You either give God the glory, do His name and the honor that He is worthy of, or you're going to come under His judgment. Glorifying God is at the heart of everything. Absolutely everything. Now, with that brief introduction for the rest of this morning and Friday, I want to talk about how we do that. I don't want you to just know you're supposed to do it, but be unsure as to what that means. So I'm going to talk about very, very specific things that will enable you and me to glorify God, which is our duty, our responsibility, our joy, which saves us from judgment, which saves us from chastening, which delivers us into the place of greatest blessing. Number one, and I'm going to give you as many as we have time for today and next time. Number one, we glorify God by confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior. We glorify God by confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's at the very beginning. And to show you that, look at Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at a number of scriptures that, that are the source of these means of glorifying God. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, speaking of Christ, Paul says, Therefore also God highly exalted him. That's after his humiliation. The prior verses were talking about Christ being found in fashion as a man, humbling himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, verse 8. It talks about Christ's death for sin. Then in verse 9, because of his death, God highly exalted him. And that would include the resurrection and the ascension, where God exalts Christ in resurrection and then takes him to his own right hand. And listen to this. And bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Now, Jesus had an earthly name, and that's the name we know, Jesus. That is an earthly name. Joshua in the Old Testament basically had the same name. Uh, there certainly are people today who have the name Jesus. It is a, a Hispanic name given to many men. Jesus was an earthly name. It had a significant meaning. It meant Jehovah saves. But a lot of earthly people had, had names that had the idea of God in them. Even Daniel's name meant God is judge. So Jesus was his earthly name. But when God exalted him, he gave him a name which is above every name. That can't be the name Jesus. Jesus is an earthly name. And there were people who bore that name prior to the time of Christ and since. What then is the name which is above every name? Well, there's only one name, and that's Lord. So God basically made him Lord. That at the name of Jesus, which is now Lord, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then this closing phrase, to the glory of God the Father. Do you know why people ought to confess Jesus as Lord? Because it brings glory to God the Father. That is the reason for salvation. 
You say, well, I thought salvation was for my benefit. No. Your benefit is incidental. Your benefit is incidental. The real benefit of salvation is that God might be glorified. That is the issue. You are to confess Jesus as Lord, not just to save your soul from hell, not just to usher yourself into blessing, not just to escape punishment, enjoy forgiveness. You are to confess Jesus as Lord because to do that glorifies the Father whose Son He is. In John 5.23, Jesus said, Whoever honors me honors my Father. Whoever doesn't honor me doesn't honor my Father. God the Father said of Jesus, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God sent His Son into the world and called the human race to acknowledge His Son as Lord. When you do that, you are honoring the God who sent Christ. Salvation goes way beyond just you escaping hell, way beyond just you having the forgiveness of sins or participating in blessing. Salvation is all about honoring the God of the universe whose unfolding redemptive plan is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In eternity past, before time began, the Apostle Paul says, God made a promise. Titus chapter 1 verse 2. God made a promise in eternity past before time began. 2 Timothy 1.9 says God made that promise in Christ before time began. When you go back before time began, there's no one there but the Trinity. Angels aren't created. People aren't created. Nothing is created. The universe is not created. But the Father makes a promise to the Son. And that promise to the Son is an expression of love. Because He loves the Son so perfectly, He promises that He's going to create a human race. He's going to redeem some from that human race. And He's going to give them to the Son as a love gift. That's why in John 6, Jesus said, All that the Father gives to me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will not cast out. That's why Jesus said, I came to do the Father's will, not my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And his will is that I gather all those whom the Father has chosen and raise them up at the last day and bring them to glory. So there's this massive eternal plan by which God the Father sends his Son into the world to redeem a chosen humanity who forever will glorify and praise the name of God. That's what you're going to spend forever in heaven doing. The primary compelling reason that people are to come to Christ is because it honors God, and when you don't come to Christ, it dishonors God. When you reject Jesus Christ, you're saying to God, I don't care what your plan is, I don't care about your love, I don't care about your grace, I don't care about the sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made on the cross, I could care less about any of that, I don't care about the heaven you have prepared for those who believe, I am indifferent to all of that, I have no interest in that, and basically what you're doing is you are taking away the glory that God demands. You're ignoring Him. It would be, I suppose, like uh, some prominent individual, well-known and well-respected worldwide as some great person were to come into your presence and you were to shun that person with outright, overt, blatant, face-to-face -face indifference and disregard. And that's the way people treat God. God, whose love and mercy and grace has sent His Son to bring the gift of salvation, they spurn. And the reason that we ought not to do that, certainly to keep us out of hell, is a good one, but the primary reason is that in believing in Christ, in confessing Him as Lord, as verse 10 says, in bowing our knee and confessing Jesus as Lord, we give glory to God the Father. 
In Romans chapter 1, another passage along the same line, and it's a very important theme in the New Testament. I can't by any means exhaust it, but just introduce it to you. I want you to notice something in Romans 1.5. Paul here started writing about his ministry. Down in verse 17, he talks um, about justification by faith. Uh, in verse 16, about not being ashamed of the gospel. Verse 15, being eager to preach and all of that. So he's really kind of talking about the, the character of his ministry. But I want you to notice verse 5 of Romans 1. He ends verse 4, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. He's been given saving grace. He's been given the grace of, of an apostle to bring about the obedience of faith among all nations. All right, His goal is to go out, preach the gospel so that people will believe and obey. You can't separate faith from obedience. Faith always submits to the authority of God. So he says, I am to preach the gospel that brings about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. And listen to the end of verse 5. For their sake? No. For his name's sake. For his name's sake. Salvation, again, is not for the sinner primarily. It is in some ways incidentally for the sinner and primarily for God. For the sake of his name. And his name is simply the summation of all that he is. In 3 John, you have a very similar statement uh, way back at the end of the New Testament, and I'll just read it to you. You don't need to look it up. Very important. It here is speaking about evangelists, those who go out and preach the gospel. Verse 7 of 3 John. They went out for the sake of the name. The name? Who's that? I am that I am. That's who it is. It's God. And whenever you see the idea of the name of God, that is simply the composite of all that he is. That is representative of all that God is. That's true today. If I say uh, to you, uh, I'm John MacArthur, that is more than just a symbol to, to identify me as over against five other people. The name John MacArthur encompasses everything about me that you know. Everything about my life, everything about my person, everything about my ministry, everything about my family, everything about my whole world. Whatever you know of John MacArthur is all bound up in that name. And when God says it is for the name, he means all that is true about him. So we are to come to Christ and we are to bow our knee before him and to confess him as Lord for the glory of God, for the sake of the name. I remember reading years ago when I used to read a lot of missionary biographies. I still read them occasionally. And I was reading the wonderful biography of Henry Martin who went to India, who was such an incredible missionary. And when he first went to India as a relatively young man, on his first occasion to visit India, he went into an, a Hindu temple. There are few experiences on the face of the earth like that. I have been in Hindu temples. I have been in what has got to be the grossest of all of them on the face of the earth, the temple of Kali in Calcutta, the only one left where they still have blood sacrificed daily and slay a huge bull weekly. And they, they, they worship sex there. It's as perverted as religion gets. There's blood running down everywhere. It is a gross, gross place. Symbols of sexual things uh, are literally worshipped by women. It's, it's a terrible, frightening place. It was such a place, such a temple, such a Hindu temple that Henry Martin first went into when he arrived in India. 
He didn't stay there very long, according to his journal. A few minutes there, and he turned on his heels, and he ran out the back, and he ran down the stairs, and he ran as far away as he could get from the stench of the place, from all the incense, and the smell of all the people jammed in there, and the filth of it all, and the horror of it all as it blasphemed his God. And he took his journal out, and he wrote this. I cannot endure existence if Jesus Christ is to be so dishonored. And he wept. That is the driving passion, to honor God and to honor Christ. To honor the Creator God, the God of grace, the God of mercy, the God of love, the God of condescension, the God of sacrifice, who Himself in the form of Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Confessing Jesus as Lord glorifies God. And apart from that, you can't glorify Him at all. This is the entry into glorifying God. When we allow God to clothe us with the robe of His righteousness, He is glorified. When we acknowledge that He saves, He is glorified. When we acknowledge that He is a God of grace and forgiveness, He is glorified. When we call Jesus Lord, He is glorified. So first of all, you glorify God by confessing Jesus as Lord. And if you've never done that, if you've never gotten on your knees before God and acknowledged Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of your life, you cannot glorify God. And frankly, you're in the wrong place because all that occurs here will be wasted on you because you have no capacity to glorify God unless you are His by virtue of confessing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Secondly, and this ought to be obvious to all of us, we glorify God by aiming our life at that purpose. We glorify God by aiming our life at that purpose. That is to say, we glorify God by setting that goal. I say over and over again, and for years have said this to my own heart, will it glorify God? Will it glorify God? Will it glorify God? That should be the controlling principle, like Psalm 16 that I read to you last time. I have set the Lord always before me. And I always want to view everything through Him. Years ago, I read a book called In His Steps. If you find one in the library, read it. It's a marvelous, marvelous book. Basically laying out what it would be like if you lived your whole life trying to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Putting the Lord before you in everything. Well, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's this point. You do everything to the glory of God. Absolutely everything. Even as mundane as eating and drinking. I mean, that is the routine stuff of life. That's the, just the normal, sort of non-spiritual, non-consequential routine of life. But even in that, you eat and you drink, and whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God. That's at the very base of Christian living. Now, what does it mean to say that? And I want to develop this a little bit because I think it's really important. If I want to live my life to the glory of God, then everything I do is for His glory. Every thought I think, every word I speak, every act I do, every relationship I build, everything I'm engaged in, 
Every effort I make as a student, as a Christian, everything is to redound to the glory of God. What that does is get self completely out of the picture. Self-worship is gone, and all that is left is God. By the way, if you want a simple definition of hypocrisy, hypocrisy is me stealing God's glory. That's hypocrisy. But I don't want to do that. I want to do all for His glory. What does that mean? Let me give you several sub-points. First of all, if you're going to live your life for God's glory, if you're really going to aim at His glory, first of all, you will prefer Him above all else. You will prefer Him above all else. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, that means He's more important to you than anything. He's more important to you than any other person, any opportunity, any privilege, any thrill, any adventure, any dream, any plan, any purpose, anything. Everything becomes sublimated to Him. I want to give you what I think probably, and, and I've searched my own understanding of Scripture for this, but I, I really believe what might be the most graphic illustration of this level of dedication, where you prefer Him above all else. Exodus chapter 32. This is a really amazing account of the children of Israel in the wilderness at the time when they made the golden calf. Exodus 32. Moses went up in the mountain to get the law of God, came down, and he couldn't believe it because when he came down, they were worshiping a golden calf. He was so furious in verse 19 of Exodus 32 that he threw down the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and shattered them. Verse 20, he took the calf which they had made, burned it with fire, ground it to powder. It was gold now, right? So he melts the gold down. Once the gold hardened, he ground it into powder, scattered it over the surface of the water, and made the sons of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, why did this people do, what did this people do to you that you brought such great sin upon them? I left you in charge, Aaron. What in the world did they do to you? Did they threaten to kill you or kill your family? What in, or to give you a great amount of money? And Aaron's answer, what a cop out. Do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself. Ah, they're prone to evil. What kind of an excuse is that? You know, they just, they're just a flaky bunch. And Aaron said, That's the, they're just prone to evil. It's, it's easy to understand. For they said to me, make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, well, we don't know what has become of him. I mean, he went up in the mountain and he hasn't come back. What a lame excuse. So I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So, they, so everybody starts ripping off their gold off of anything it's on and pulling it all together and uh, throw it in the fire. So they gave it to me and I, I threw it in the fire. And you'll never believe what happened. I just threw it in the fire and out came this calf. It was, it was astonishing, really. It was just... I mean, this guy just wants no responsibility for anything. I mean, I'm, they're, just, they're just flaky folks and 
they just brought this deal up and I said, well, you know, throw it in the fire and boy, can you believe it? A calf came out. Verse 25. When Moses saw that the people were out of control, um, that, that does not mean anything other than they were involved in sin, probably sexual sin. For Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies. So Moses stood in the gate of the camp. There may have been as many as two million of them, people. He stood there and he said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And bless him, all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. All the priestly line came and stood with Moses. Moses was basically saying, Who's on God's side here? Who wants to glorify God? And the Levites came. And he said to them, All right. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Now remember, these are priests, not soldiers. Every man of you put his sword on his thigh. Go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother, every man his friend, and every man his neighbor. Just go back in the camp and slaughter everybody you know. Just kill everybody in your family and kill all your friends and all your neighbors. Now, that, that would be a significant enterprise. It would be a bloodbath of... Massive proportions. And I don't think those guys were just going to lay down and put their neck like this so they could have their head chopped off. It would, it would, they would have to engage in tremendous fight. But verse 28, So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. 3,000 men fell, slaughtered by the Levites. Moses said, Dedicate yourself today to the Lord. For every man has been against his son and against his brother in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. What is that saying? Dedicate yourselves today to the Lord. What he is saying is this to these Levites. Who's first in your life? Family? Friends? Or God? If God is first, put your sword on, go massacre your friends. And they did. I would call that preferring the glory of God above all else, wouldn't you? The New Testament doesn't ask us to do that, but Jesus did say, I came to bring a sword, to set the father against his daughter, son against his mother, a husband against his wife, a wife against his husband, a person against their family, against their friends. I came to, to bring a sword. And if you're not willing to leave father, mother, sister, brother to follow me, Jesus said, you're not worthy to be my what? Disciple. You see, preferring him above everything else means the most precious thing in your world. Family, friends, you're willing. To press that issue a little bit, it means you are content to do his will no matter what it costs. No matter what it costs. In terms of relationships. When your friends come around you and want you to sin and to follow the path of iniquity, you're unwilling to do that and you will take your stand if it means you lose your friend. That's how it is. A New Testament illustration of this kind of commitment is found in John 21. In the case of Peter, and I don't want to go through the whole story here, but we could spend a whole time just on this. But I do want to touch base with the fact that Peter was being disobedient. 
After Jesus rose from the dead, he saw the disciples in the upper room. He said, go to Galilee and wait. Just go to Galilee and wait for me. I'll come and I'll do the final preparation and then I'll leave uh, for, the, for the last time. He had already risen from the dead. And uh, now he had 40 days after his resurrection before he ascended. He said, before I ascend, I want to meet with you one more time. Just go to Galilee and wait. Do nothing but wait. Well, Peter went to Galilee. He's sitting around twiddling his thumbs for a while. What's going on? The Lord's not here. The Lord's not here. I don't know if I'm adequate for this ministry deal. And so in John 21, he goes back to fishing, takes his boat, gets his nets, goes back and tries to catch fish. Unfaithful, disobedient. So the Lord shows up and the Lord confronts him about his disobedience and he says to him three times, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? And if you do, then forget the fish and feed the sheep. I, I've called you away from fishing once, I'm calling you away from it again. I want you to feed sheep. I want you to minister. And if you love me, you'll obey me. And after that dialogue, we pick it up in verse 18 of John 21. Jesus says to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger... You used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. Jesus said, Peter, you have failed and you have vacillated every time. When you were confronted by the girl at the time of my trial, you denied me. When you were confronted by the people around the fire, you denied me. On three separate occasions, you denied me. The cock crew, you went out and wept bitterly. You denied me. When you were walking on water, you got your eyes off of me and you started to sing. I mean, Peter was a classic picture of a guy who failed in the crisis. And now I ask you a simple thing. Go to Galilee, wait in the mountain. You fail me again. You go back to fishing. I have to go through all of this again, getting you back in line. Now let me tell you something. When you were younger, you used to put on your own belt and go where you wanted. You did your own deal. That's what he means. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands. That very Greek phrase is used in extra-biblical literature to speak of a crucifixion. And that's exactly what Jesus was talking about. Someone else is going to bind you, and they're going to take you where you don't want to go, and you're going to die a death that will glorify God. What does that mean? It means God is glorified when you are willing if need be, to die before you would deny Christ, right? And you know what? You say, well, why did Jesus tell Peter that? Well, you say, wouldn't he worry the rest of his life? Wouldn't he go around saying, oh my, I'm going to die. Pretty soon I'm going to get crucified. By the way, he was crucified, only he requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't think it was worthy to be crucified the way his Lord was. And didn't he spend the rest of his life fearing that impending reality? No, quite the contrary. He spent the rest of his life rejoicing in the fact that Jesus had promised him that when that hour came, for one time in his life, he would be faithful. He could build his whole life on the promise of his future faithfulness and not doubt himself permanently. But Jesus said to him, faithfulness to me is going to cost you your life. And after he had spoken this, verse 19, he said to him, follow me. And you're going to follow me to being crucified upside down. Is it worth it? Peter followed. We never have a record ever after this that Peter ever wavered one inch. Isaiah chapter 24 verse 15. Isaiah called to the remnant and he said, glorify God in the fire. 
Do you prefer the glory of God above everything else? Are you content to do the will of God no matter what the cost? Friends, family, life itself. Secondly, sub-point under number two. You aim your life at glorifying God when you prefer Him above all else. Secondly, when you suffer when He Listen carefully. When you suffer, when he is dishonored. You know, I can tell about a person, whether they live to the glory of God, by how they react to God being dishonored. This is what the Bible calls being zealous for his name. And back in Psalm 69, and, and we'll just wrap this up kind of around this same point here, but I, I want you to grab this. It's so profound. In Psalm 69 and verse 9, David said this, Zeal for thy house has eaten me up. In other words, God, I, I love you and I love your house, which means all that involves worshiping you, so much that it's tearing me up. Why? In the rest of the verse, the reproaches or criticisms or blasphemies, any of those, of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And I wept in my soul with fasting. What's he saying? He's saying what Henry Martin said. He's saying, I can't endure existence if you are dishonored. He broke David's heart when God was blasphemed. He was so passionate about worship that when worship was defiled, when God's name was dragged down, it tore him up. Boy, what an insulation that is against sin and temptation, isn't it? When you are so passionately devoted to the love of God that anything, listen, anything that dishonors God causes you deep pain. And hey, we live in a culture where that goes on to such a degree that it's a wonder we can even see it anymore, right? We've been so conditioned to expect it. When, um, when God's name is taken in vain, do you shudder in your soul? Does that cause you pain? When mocking things are said about Jesus Christ, does that pain your heart? When justice is perverted and truth is perverted, do you feel the pain of that dishonor of God? When the word of God is mocked and discounted and discredited, do you suffer? Jesus commended the Ephesian church, even though it was a a church that had left its first love, Jesus commended it with these words, you cannot bear those who are evil. Do you have a, a terrible, terrible hatred of what is evil? You see, that's characteristic of one who lives to the glory of God. First, he prefers God's honor or she prefers God's honor above all else and is content to suffer any loss, to pay any price, that God be glorified. Second, the one who is aiming clearly at the glory of God hurts when God is dishonored. You feel like David, and you pray those imprecatory psalms. Oh, God, come down in judgment. God, why don't you stop this? Why don't you stop those who blaspheme your name? Why don't you destroy those who attack your people? Why don't you kill those who distort the truth and pervert your church and bring sin in and teach error and heresy and, and 
debilitate your purposes and your kingdom. That's where David was. You read through the, the Psalms called the imprecatory Psalms, and David prayed that God would kill the ungodly. He'd, David's prayer would be like this, God, if you're not going to save them, kill them, because they blaspheme your name. And David couldn't stand God's name being blasphemed. Jesus had the same attitude. John 2, Jesus comes. First thing he does in his ministry, first thing, goes right to the temple, walks in the house of God, sees what is a den of thieves, perversion, blasphemy everywhere. God is being dishonored in his own place. Makes a whip, goes through the place, cracking the whip, throwing people around, throwing tables around, throwing people out. If you ever question whether he was a man's man, just a, that's a one-man job on the temple. Just cleaning the place out. And then when he gets done with that, he says this. He quotes Psalm 69.9, which I just read. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. The reproaches that have fallen on you are fallen on me. Jesus had the same attitude that David did. He couldn't stand to see God dishonored. And if that's the way you are, that's going to have a tremendous impact on how you live your life. So how do you glorify God? First, by confessing Jesus as Lord. Second, by aiming your life at that purpose. Aiming your life at that purpose means preferring Him above all else and suffering when He is dishonored. It means one other thing. This is a very important one. It means being content to be outdone by others if He is glorified. It means being content to be outdone by others if He is glorified. Boy, here may be the essence of humility. Philippians 1. Just quickly, Paul is a prisoner when he writes this. Being a prisoner in those times was a very difficult thing. And you know what was so sad? It was one thing to be a prisoner. God was using him in a wonderful way and he was leading Caesar's household to Christ. You remember that if a guard was, if he was chained to a guard, that was too bad for Paul, uh, but it was also too bad for the guard because he was going to get the nonstop gospel. But I want you to notice what happens. This is just a sad, sad situation. He talks about the whole praetorian guard uh, knowing the gospel in chapter 1, verse 13. And uh, it's turned out in verse 12 for the, for the progress of the gospel that he is a prisoner. But verse 15 is just unbelievable. Some, he says, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. What, what does that mean? Here's the picture. I know, I'll just give it to you very briefly. Paul's a prisoner. Coming along behind Paul are a lot of other preachers, not of his caliber. But churches have grown and developed and young elders have been nurtured and they're now out there preaching and uh, having their little moment in the sun. Paul goes into prison. And you know what they start to say? Ah, the Lord had to put him on a, sh on a shelf. They started to believe Paul's critics. He's got sin in his life. He's got iniquity in his life. He's got some hidden things in his life that are bad. And the Lord had to put him away. And, and we're the new preachers. And, 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 and Paul is being punished. They're preaching from envy and strife. They really were so jealous of him. So envious. This was their time to attack and assault him because he was a prisoner. Down in verse 17, he says they are preaching Christ out of selfish ambition. At the end of verse 17, they are thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. They're, they're trying to hurt me. 
They were coming along saying, don't listen to Paul, he's on the shelf, listen to us, we're the new breed, we're the servants of God, we're the preachers that God has anointed, forget Paul, he's sinned, he's on the shelf, and the pain of that attack was so deep. You might have understood if he resented them, if he was bitter toward them, if he was hostile toward them, but look at his attitude, verse 18. What then? Literally, so what? So what? So what if they think I'm in sin? So what if they preach from selfish ambition? So what if they want to add distress to my imprisonment? So what if they speak from envy and strife? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. You know what he's saying? He said, I really don't care who the human instrument is. If Christ is preached, I'll rejoice. I don't care what they say about me. If Christ is preached, I'll rejoice. I don't care whether my reputation is good or bad. Christ is preached, I'll rejoice. I don't care if they hurt me or they love me. Christ is preached, and that, in that I'll rejoice. Here was a man who had no ego. Here was a man who had no agenda. Listen to this. Here was a man who was content when others were doing what he did and receiving prominence for it in his place. That's tough. You can really tell if you're glorifying God when someone else does what you do better than you do it and you're glad. When someone sings better than you sing, plays better than you play, is a better scholar, is a better communicator of the gospel, is a better teacher. So when someone does what you do better than you do it to the glory of Christ, when you rejoice, you are living to the glory of God. It's not personal. I remember years ago, two pastors in the San Fernando Valley had a Sunday school contest to see who could get the most people. I knew about this. The pastor that lost got sick and threw up. That's how competitive it was. When I heard that, I almost got sick and threw up. How sad. But the point of living to the glory of God is it doesn't matter. Let my candle go out if the sun of righteousness can shine with healing in his beams. What do I care? I'm, I'm completely dispensable. I'm replaceable. Aim your life at God's glory, which means... Prefer His glory above everything. Be content, no matter what the cost, to, to, that, to do that which glorifies God. Feel pain in your heart when God is dishonored. And be content to be outdone by somebody who does just what you do better than you do it, and with more blessing, because it brings glory to God. And when those things are a part of your life, you are aiming at His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, again, you've reminded us of these great truths. Help us to live them out. Thank you, Father, for each of these young people. I know it's tough this morning because it's really warm here. And so many things can distract us in a time like this. But, Lord, help us if we can just kind of reach through all the, the sights and sounds of a, of a day like today in a place like this to, to reach out and, and grab hold of this concept of glorifying you at any cost to the degree where we feel your pain and we're content to be outdone if you get glory. Lord, we want to live that way because you deserve it. You're worthy of it. And it would be our highest honor to give you the glory, do your name. That's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.